You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I'm your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors has everything you need to keep your ride or die alive. From superchargers, brakes, exhaust kits, and more, 122 million parts, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home the win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. It is the Ringer Up One Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark. Max Verstappen, surprise, surprise, wins in Spain. I'm joined by our European correspondent, Megan Schuster. Megan, hello. Hello, Kevin. Does... Does it look like it's raining where I am? I, I really can't tell. I, I just, just went around turn five and I feel like I'm getting drenched over here. It's either that or something we're very familiar with, which is flop sweat. Hello, Spanners. <laughs> What's going on, buddy? Well, uh, I'm sweating too. It's good news for any content creators that have consistently said that Mercedes would end up being the second fastest car and that Aston Martin would drop out of the top three once upgrades kicked in. I was never worried. I was never worried. We're not even a minute into this podcast and Spanners is already patting himself on the back. So I think it's going to be a good day, you guys. <laughs> well, there's two things here. Number one is that they actually asked Toto Wolf in his Sky post-race briefing if Mercedes was back, which yeah. is so funny <laughs> because I don't know what he's supposed to say. Um, we had this a lot in, in America, Spanners, where we just put it to people. Is Texas back? Is Notre Dame back? Is Florida State back? And they never, the coach or the, like one person ever, the Texas quarterback actually said they were back and it became like a, a joke for five years. So let me read this out. It's from Philip Horton. Red Bull's advantage over the next best car in each F1 race. We did this last week. We have a new addition. Bahrain, 38 seconds. Saudi, 20 seconds. Australia, safety car finish, 0.1 seconds. Azerbaijan, 21 seconds. Miami, 26 seconds. Monaco, 28 seconds. Spain, 24 seconds. If being 24 seconds behind the Red Bull is back, I don't know if Mercedes wants to be back. They're getting closer to being back, but there's a lot of daylight between can't do anything and being back. We'll start with these banners since you staked this out a long time ago. How close are the Mercs? See, there's a difference because those gaps you read out weren't Mercedes to Red Bull. They were oh, Aston Martin to Red Bull. <laughs> they were Ferrari to Red Bull. And at the beginning of the season, I did say 
the, the team most likely to, to do well in the upgrades to develop well and catch that up were Mercedes. So if Ferrari and Aston Martin are, are slipping back and it's now Mercedes that are the ones pushing that gap, there was more chance of Mercedes now pushing on and closing that gap than there ever was of Ferrari and Aston Martin closing that gap. And I think Christian Horner knows this. Now, me and Meg have been really enjoying playing amateur sofa, sorry, armchair psychologists. And if you listen to Christian Horner, when he's talked about the competition or Mercedes in the past, all through this season so far, he said, oh yeah, no, they're really doing good. You know, oh, we really have to be on our toes. We, can, uh, we, we can't sleep for a second because they'll be on us any minute. When he got asked today, are Mercedes closing the gap? He went, well, we still won by 24 seconds. And I went, oh, slightly defensive. I think that that is a wake-up call to Red Bull. And it could also be that he didn't like Nico Rosberg, who was yes. being incredibly weird <laughs> the entire time. Yep. And, and, and so Christian went at... So first of all, Nico's interaction with Lewis was, was pretty awkward. And then he goes at Horner about the Red Bull performance. And Horner says, if you guys didn't see it, you know, now that you're out of the car, you'll criticize anybody. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think he'll just criticize Checo Perez, who actually did leave a little bit on the table. We're going to get to that. Um, but I'd also, it, like, it might be that Horner's getting worried about Mercedes. I wouldn't be yet. I would still need to see a little bit more to be scared. Although he certainly knows more than me. Um, but it could also, you know, it, more than anything, I think it was more Horner for the first time in his life didn't like a Sky interview. <laughs> First time ever. And I, I will say, while Toto did not say that Mercedes is back, he did kind of caveat the 24 seconds thing a little bit when they were asking about him. He about didn't know it. how to answer the question because it was a crazy question. It was a crazy question. But he did say that he believed that the gap was probably closer to 15 seconds, given that Lewis was doing a lot of lifting and coasting toward the end, trying to preserve those tires. Max went on to a new set of softs a little bit later. So he didn't say that Mercedes Max is back. Max was black but he and did white say, flagged. Max he black and white say, <laughs> He did say that he thinks it's closer. Max was just five penalties away from being in real trouble there uh, today. <laughs> Max, Max was exceeding track limits, even though no one really knew, no one really saw it in real time. And so they basically were like, don't take any risks, don't take any risks, don't take any risks. Um, and then by he the did way, it anyway and got the fastest lap. And he did lap, it anyway. So. Um, Checo said after the race that, that he felt that, number one, it was hard to follow on the track. Number two is that he thought that if they really wanted to push, they should have taken more risks in lap one, which is what George did. After essentially George started gaining on Checo, they pitted again later in the race just to try to get Checo on some fresh tires, and there wasn't anything that they could do. George was was just too far gone. Um, so I, I guess, you know, Meg, same question. Like, what what what's the state of play here between Merck and Red Bull? Yeah, I mean, I... I don't think it's changing at the top. I mean, we saw how fast Max is like always when he's running out in front alone. I definitely thought that Checo should have been able to get more out of the car today. And, and there was a little bit of weirdness at the end where it seemed like for maybe around like 10 or 12 laps left, they, they must have told him that he needed to preserve his tires or something because he actually started losing lap time to George where he'd been picking up between like 0.8 and one seconds on him per lap. And then they told him to kind of gun for it again with four laps left. And it's, it's just seemed like it was too late. So I didn't know if we were hearing that radio message late or what exactly was going on there, but um, it seemed like he should have at least been able to get up into third. So I'm not totally concerned that, you know, any kind of funny business is going on and that Mercedes is going to come up in the points, but 
It's certainly a lot more fun when Mercedes is up there battling, given how personally everyone at Red Bull takes every advantage Mercedes has. And, and this is from Horner to Max to, you know, it seems like everyone on the team just gets more sensitive when they're the ones they're fighting with. So I do hope this continues going forward. And overall, I think it was really encouraging to see this kind of pace from Mercedes when we didn't really get a good glimpse at their upgrades in Monaco. And it's really hard to read the ultimate pace in a race like that where there was some gaps out of the front because Formula One exists in this middle ground between endurance racing where you're really managing your, your car and your machine say over 24 hours, which by the way is way too long for a race car race. Uh, and it's not an out and out sprint where you're in a go-kart and you're having to just be lights to flag all out. So if you look at the race pace on the final stint, I think everyone was on softs by then. So Hamilton's doing maybe one a one eighteens, and Verstappen's a little quicker. And then you go, well, okay, that's that's the gap. Look at the gap between the front and the back. It's twenty four seconds. But then Verstappen, uh, even though his uh, his race engineer said, "Hey, dude, we fully got to chill here. You're crossing the line. We're getting black and white flags. Let's just bring it home." Verstappen has a little think about it and goes, um, "No, I'll just do whatever I want," <laughs> and sets a fastest lap, sixteen point three. So at the very least, you know, you can say he's conserving two seconds a lap. Lewis Hamilton has a go, and we didn't hear any radio communications with them, but you saw the, the sector times flashing purple, and you say, oh, hello, he's having a go here as well. 16.6. So it wasn't a million miles away. So I think the headline gap of 24 seconds doesn't quite show what's happening because, because those cars weren't pushing, you know, uh, right to the death. So if we see them even a little bit closer, and say it gets within five seconds at, at, at Montreal, and then you see Lewis Hamilton trying to push that gap to five seconds, then you'll see what Verstappen or, or Perez up front has in their tank. Today wasn't a good representation of overall pace, but it was a good representation of the new world order. Hmm. Um, let's stay on Mercedes here for a couple more minutes. Um, first of all, you wanted to mention Spanners, the, the Q2, <laughs> Let's call it a mistake yeah. on Saturday. Miscommunication. I do like that it, it's possible here that Mercedes now pulls ahead of, of Aston and then has kind of a mini version of the Red Bull problem, which is they can only destroy each other in the in the in the P two kind of thing uh, in the P two stratosphere. Uh, what do you think of that? And is it over for you? Okay, so on the face of it, it's a miscommunication. Russell didn't know that Lewis Hamilton was behind him. His mirrors had stopped working. They must have turned off. Uh, he has to turn them off and on again, and maybe that's what would have made them work. Um, and then Lewis Hamilton drives uh, up the outside. George Russell closes the gap. It would have pushed him onto the grass, but there's actually this contact that uh, wrecks Lewis Hamilton. He needs a new front wing. George Russell goes off to attempt unsuccessfully to qualify out of Q2. Now, I just want to keep an eye on this because we'll take them for face value that it was a miscommunication. But there's one of two things happening. One is George Russell's awareness is clearly not at the top end at the moment. In Monaco, just darts out on for the rejoin and, and cuts across the track and ends up having Perez hitting him. And he even admitted himself in Monaco, he said, well, I didn't really know what was going on, so I just booted it and kind of hoped for, <laughs> hoped for the best. And so, yes, you don't know what's going on. There's a miscommunication, but you knew your teammate was a little bit behind you. Like, he must have known the track position of Hamilton. He also must have known that by being compromised out of turn 13 and having to let signs by, you're not going to get that full acceleration down the straight. Look at the Hamilton onboard. The, the toe 
or the or the seeming toe was such a massive effect down that home straight. Hamilton is catching him extraordinarily quickly just because Russell didn't get a good pull out of that final straight. So in that scenario where now Hamilton's lap is going to be compromised coming up to the back of Russell. Russell's lap is already compromised from having let signs through, but Russell must finish that lap to have any chance of qualifying to Q3. If he doesn't pull over to the left, then Hamilton is going to be alongside and he must lift. Therefore, he's definitely out of Q2. Or he shuts the door, goes, oh, sorry, it was a miscommunication. And then he gets to complete Q2. So all I'm saying is, yes, it was a miscommunication, but it was one that exactly suited the specific scenario that would benefit him. I think that's one to keep an eye on as this relationship evolves. Uh, Megan, what is the relationship between George Russell and knowing what rain is? (laughs) Not good, clearly. Um, It was just so funny. Well, just watching the evolution of this was so, so amusing today because gets on the radio, tells his race engineer, you know, I'm going around turn five, rain is starting. They announced on the broadcast and we kind of wait to see, because I think Red Bull pitted around that time, maybe Max pitted around that time. And a couple other people in the broadcast was like, well, you know, maybe they messed that timing up of it. Maybe they're going to have to come back in now if if the rain is truly and earnestly starting, like George said it is. Then it's a couple laps later and he hops back on and he's like, hey, uh, is anyone else reporting rain out there or just just me? And his race engineer is like, uh, brother, it's it's just you. It's it's only you. Um, and it, it was funny, like when they were showing George, Lewis and Max in that cool down area before they went to the podium, George brought it up again to, to each of them and was like, listen, guys, I reported that it was raining. I thought that it was turned out it was just sweat from my hair. So I don't know if he was nervous or if he was really just pushing out there because it seemed like the track was cooling down throughout the day rather than heating up. So, I mean, granted, you're going to sweat out there. You're in a race car that's very, very hot. But um, one would hope that he would be able to recognize sweat versus rain. Who knows? Uh, I feel like the race engineer sold him out a little tiny bit. He could have just said no and just not made it a, a week-long <laughs> meme in that yeah. spot. Um, Spanners, we just got a question literally just from one minute ago from Robert Zimmerman asking, do you find it insulting as a British person that another <laughs> Brit did not appropriately recognize rain? <laughs> I, I I understand that. I think uh, you have to remember that in the UK, I think we are the most overcast nation on the planet. Yes. So we have the most overcast nation. So when you talk about rain, it's kind of a normal occurrence for us. We just feel it in our auras. We feel it in our souls. That's why you guys make great raincoats. Exactly. I love the raincoats yeah. over there. There's a raincoat culture that doesn't exist over here. Have you seen Brits when the sun comes out? It's insane. We're, we're just there with scissors hacking our, our pants shorter <laughs> and just going absolutely crazy barefoot and like you know, pe- war paint and, and praising the sun. Uh, but I tell you what that does show with Russell, and I'll give him a compliment, is he never accepts the situation he's in. He's always looking for, for something like, oh, if we go long and hope for a safety car, maybe that'll work. And it has worked for him, to be fair. Today... Nothing was coming to his rescue. He begged again, can we go long? The tires are fine. They only gave him one lap extra. And even then, he's, he's just looking for what is the angle? What is the thing that can get me out of the situation? And, he, and I think that he manifested in his, his mind rain because rain was the only thing that was going to move him forward. But look, he's determined. He said, he said, look, let's not look backwards. Let's look forward. Do you think he was talking about Carlos Sainz? No, he already knew he was getting Carlos Sainz. He was talking about Lewis Hamilton. If you think 
there's going to be some wonderful Bottas-Hamilton relationship blossoming between these two. No, think more Senna Prost. Think more Hamilton Rosberg. There's a Steve Jobs uh, old old sort of phrase he used to use called, uh, or I think others around him used it, called the reality distortion field, where he would just bend whatever reality was to his will and just say, oh, no, we can do this. And they would say, no, you can't do this. So what George Russell is doing is basically uh, willing, trying to will the race towards him, and it hasn't manifest. Yet Do- doesn't appear yeah, exactly. to be working. <laughs> Does not appear <laughs> I admire the attempt, but uh, you can't just uh, manifest rain, unfortunately. So you can't talk about Mercedes without talking about Aston for a bunch of reasons. Um, number one is that I was actually like a little bit hesitant to crown Merck today just because once I, everybody was like, oh, Hamilton passed Stroll. Is that news? Is that news? Um, and so uh, let's let's kind of outline this here, Spain. As you said, Aston did not look as bad as it appeared. No, and as much as I would love to do like a massive, I told you so, there's a few mitigating factors to that. So look, Aston Martin at the moment is Alonso. I, I'm, I'm sorry to Lance Stroll fans, but the success has been highlighted by Alonso. If you had two strolls in, it just wouldn't look as good as it's been looking. I think Ast- uh, Alonso had some damage going through the gravel in qualifying or in one of the practice sessions. And they said that there was, e- they were even like, they had some tape on there. So there was significant damage and I didn't hear about them putting a new floor on. So what we're seeing there is a, a slightly hobbled Alonso and then the performance of the Aston Martin being reflected by Stroll. Also want to pay Stroll a compliment. That move into turn four was, was, was great. And he nearly, he nearly managed it up the hill as well. But abided his time. And in fact, no, turn four, he, he ducked out the right-hander. Turn five, sent it down the inside, held that position for quite some time and did look decent. Uh, I don't think the gap between Mercedes and Aston Martin tells the whole story, but that gap was 40 seconds. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into that, but I don't think they're now suddenly 40 seconds clear of Aston Martin. But I I think one of the most interesting takeaways is that is a one-driver team. As far as headline performance, if Alonso isn't sparking and doesn't have a good weekend, Aston Martin look ordinary. So I'm going to hold fire on Aston and say... When Alonso is back with a good performance in a definitely 100% good car, that will be the measure of them. And I, but I still think they're going to be behind Mercedes. And I think it's going to be whether or not they're in contention with Ferrari. Meg, Aston expectations? I, I think I, I would peg them as, as firmly third at this point. I think Ferrari, and, and I would like to talk about Ferrari very soon. I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of fan account tweets that I pulled for this. So <laughs> would love to discuss them. But they just don't seem to be pulling anything together. They seem to be going in the opposite direction. And I think if Fernando can have a better weekend, a more consistent weekend, like we've seen from him across all of the other weeks this season, I think they'll be right back where they should be. My one criticism this weekend is that I'm getting a little sick of this new warm and fuzzy Fernando Alonso. Uh, when he decided to stay behind Lance Stroll at the end and kind of gave the radio message, you know, not to worry, I'm, I'm, you know, 1.3 behind, but I'm not going to challenge. This is going to be fine. We'll take it to the end. I was really disappointed. And, and I don't expect him to crash out. I don't expect him to threaten the team. He's, you know, wants all the points. He's like Captain Aston Martin these days. But at some point, fight with Lance Stroll. Like, why not? What, what are you going to lose? Just do it. So let you wanted to talk about Ferrari. Let's let's get to that. Um, I'm gonna give. I wanted two spanners about something, but it sounds like 
Mega, I just, I'm just going to clear out and run an ISO for you. You have the floor. So I just wanted to give a shout out to my absolute favorite account on Twitter, and that's at Fanatics Ferrari, who have given me so much joy throughout this whole season. Um, They're on a real heater this weekend of pain. And that started with primarily with Charles, but it, it you know, moved over to Carlos during the race today. But uh, they sent out this tweet after Charles was eliminated from qualifying. <laughs> And it said, it's May 2022. Ferrari leads both championships. The F-175 is good on every track. Charles Leclerc has just taken pole in Spain. Life uh. was good. <laughs> <laughs> just absolutely Love incredible. It. And then they were they were really like cope tweeting today. Um, you know, just tweeting, we are so slow with crying emojis. Um, and then I think the best one that I saw today was with the upgrades, the car definitely became more consistent. It just unfortunately became more consistently slow. So I just wanted to shout out all the Ferrari fans who are in real pain right now. We see you and uh, we appreciate you tweeting through it. Spanish, you had some Carlos Sainz thoughts. I, I don't have any sympathy for the Tifosi. Can I do the opposite <laughs> thing? Where like, I'm just like, you enjoyed your time. Were you? Did you show empathy during the Schumacher years? No, you didn't. Now you have several decades of pain ahead of you. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I do sympathize with them uh, a lot. I love the Ferrari fan base generally a very informed fan base, a very passionate fan base as well. Um, so this was really, really difficult for them this weekend. And we can kind of, I think we can take Leclerc away out of the equation because there's something wrong with that car. That was, that was weird. He couldn't like, he turn couldn't, left. He, yeah, like and he Derek, couldn't accelerate. Derek, Derek Zoolander. <laughs> he, could, <laughs> he couldn't accelerate. He couldn't turn left. I would say that it's probably not his fault that he didn't qualify out of Q1. Yeah, so some, something fishy's going on there. Forget about Leclerc for a second. So Carlos Sainz is up there representing Ferrari. And in their partnership, he's generally been just a little bit off on race pace. So you could probably say today, Ferrari didn't have a fair representation of their pace either. But it is very clear that Sainz does not in any way trust his engineers. So his engineers going, mate, you need to go like quite a bit faster. And Sainz is like, chill, bro. I've got this. Everything's cool. And the pit walls, no, seriously, dude, we need to go a bit faster. And even when they say, okay, pit in for mediums, he's there going, are you sure? Are you, do you know what? Whatever. And, and you could just kind of see there's, not, there's, there's something not quite clicking. Like He doesn't have trust. I don't think they've ever recovered from the, the stop inventing from, from last season. And so with signs out there as the only hope, I think there was mixed messages. So the, the pit crew was trying to do one thing. Signs had an idea to do another thing. And then there came a critical moment where they suddenly realized, oh my goodness, we're not fighting these, we're not fighting these, um, these Mercedes. And it was when he was, I think it was when Russell was still behind and he had the foresight at least to go, how do we beat Perez? How do we beat Perez? So he'd seen on track already, like Hamilton's flown by Perez, uh, Russell's similar pace. Oh my goodness. Now we have to hold off, um, uh, Sergio. So yeah, a bit of a sad day all round for Ferrari. Sorry guys. Sorry to Fosi. Well, and, and to speak to your, your trust thing, I think that extends to Charles too, because later in the race, I think it was maybe going into his final pit stop. He had asked for them to put softs on and they put hards on instead. So, I, I mean, obviously that's, you know, kind of their own internal strategy thing, but it seems like maybe they need to go on kind of a group retreat over the summer break or something and do some, do some trust falls and try to reestablish some sort of a relationship because it, it seems pretty broken. There was, I, I love, by the way, the passive aggressive radio messages. This is not just specific to, to the Tifosi, where, um, like, George had one today that was like, I think we should stay out, but up to you. 
Up to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm you good either best. way. Yeah. Either way, I'm all, I mean, I'm all we, good. We can split the check or we can look at who drank the most <laughs> and who ordered sides. Either way, I don't mind. Yeah, I didn't have wine. I didn't have wine, but we can split. No, 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 we can split. We can split. I didn't have wine, though. Um, that's, that's George. Um, Spanners, the chicane coming out of Spain uh, changed this race. And I think that I think there are all sorts of theories about what one slow corner can do to overtakes or whatever. But this this race seemed like it was cooking today, brother. Yeah, this is something, you know, me and my crew have been talking about for a long, long time. And, and just like I went on a campaign, I think was quite successful to say ban all chicanes out of Grand Prix in Formula One. And I actually, I think like once I established that I'm talking about the the safety chicanes, the ones that really bring the speed down rather than say something like the chicane before the hairpin at Montreal, which we'll see next week, which is an opening chicane where, yes, the second part of the corner makes you mindful of the exit, but really you're, you're still picking one breaking point, one apex, and then and then going for it. But if you look at like the wall of champions at Montreal or the final, uh, you know, the sorry, the sector one uh, chicanes at Abu Dhabi or this chicane here at Spa, or at Imola, I know we missed Imola, but that has a final sector straight slowing down chicane as well. A lot of these chicanes were brought in in the 90s because of safety and to bring the speeds down. Well, safety now is a, is a lot better than it was in the 90s, thankfully. And the need for these chicanes has kind of gone away. And everywhere they are, they slow down action. And, and the, the thing that they've done is they've taken away the speeds and the top speeds into the final chicane. So they've denied us a lot of overtaking opportunities for a long time. The stadium section in Mexico, that's the next one where they need to weed out that chicane. It guarantees that the cars are spaced out down the home straight and then these big long straight turn one overtaking opportunities are, are, are killed. And that's what was happening in Barcelona. And I, I'm so relieved that they've gone back to this and all the arguments that, oh, we couldn't ever possibly do it because MotoGP needs more runoff area. So all of those arguments have been blown away. Uh, it's much more exciting to watch vis visually. It's made a massive difference to, to overtaking. I, I think the case for getting rid of all chicanes is, is done. And now I start my next campaign, which is to remove all undulation from F1 tracks as well. MotoGP. First of all, big picture question. Spanish, do you like MotoGP? I don't trust a vehicle that can lean that far over and not fall <laughs> so down. So I actually was, that was a jumping off point. Um, no, no pun intended. Um, well, I, so the MotoGP video game is in the Xbox thing. Like you pay, so it's basically for free. Um, and so I got it and I'm really bad at the F1 game, but I still play it. And I at least understand the aerodynamic, you know, the, the, the physics of it. Right. I, for the life of me, cannot take one corner in MotoGP. I just don't. <laughs> it doesn't seem natural. I literally cannot do it. Like, I, even if I'm going like 10 Very miles per different. hour, the guy just falls. <laughs> it's impossible. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I've ridden bikes a lot in real life. I'm not allowed anymore. But uh, yes, uh, the, the, what those guys do is is miraculous. But I don't I don't like the racing as a spectator as much as I do in Formula One. I think um, an overtake and a pass is earned so much more in single seater racing. So I enjoy it. But you know, on the shared tracks, there's been a real issue where if they want MotoGP to be there, they need runoff. They don't like gravel. Um, you know, so that was always the argument for for this turn not being not being used for formula 1 uh, but i hope now this will stay i hope this will show other tracks around the world that actually what 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 we want is a bit of a free flow onto the 
back straight. And, uh, you know, something like if you remember the, the Chinese Grand Prix with that giant straight, they didn't have a chicane leading up to it. They had a, a kind of increasing downforce corner. So it would start off slow and then it would build and, and kind of tighten. And as you went through that turn, you're building downforce. You're still able to follow. And, and that gave us fantastic racing uh, down, to, down to that final hairpin. I just saw a video of this week of Mark Marquez from MotoGP, and he was uh, he was they played him the, just his car or his, his bike, and just the gear changes, and he was able to identify the track within like five seconds. And then someone said they tried those F1 drivers, and they just couldn't do it. So MotoGP, you know, F1, F1 drivers on fraud watch. I uh, I actually I watched a, an Alpha Tauri clip this week where. Nick DeVries and Yuki Sonoda were doing like a competition where they did that and, and they did it pretty successfully. So I, I don't know that that's entirely true that F1 drivers can't. Maybe it, maybe it takes them longer to do it because it did. It was more than like five seconds. Like they had to listen to like a few turns and gear shifts and stuff, but they they were competing pretty well for it. Uh, maybe that's just evidence that Yuki and Nick DeVries are secretly the two best drivers, except Mark Marquez. Yuki might be when he's not getting, you know, time penalties. Um. All right, Meg. Any other teams aside from uh, aside from from AlphaTauri that you want to shout out and their and their gear identification? Can I can I ask you guys one one question about one driver in particular? Um, does Logan Sargent suck? Ooh, yeah, it, we could have done with a weekend not hearing from him again, couldn't we? Uh, look, uh, so. We, we don't want to hear from Logan Sargent because he's at the back of the grid and we want him to plod around in P20 and learn. And Williams are obviously doing that as well. And I know we were quite harsh on him while well, I was quite harsh on him for the Monaco review, Kev. But uh, if that's the space he needs and the space that Williams are able to give him, he needs to at least be not sticking it in the gravel, sticking it in the dirt. He needs to be anonymous while he gets up to speed, if that is the Williams plan. And then today or, or yesterday, he lost it on the final turn, which is, by the way, that layout that was notorious always for biting people on the exit before you go down the home straight. So I would like to defend Logan Sargent because it's been doing the rounds, uh, the picture of the Williams being lifted up in the air and comparing the floor of the Williams to the Mercedes, the Red Bull and the Ferrari. And I'm not an aerodynamicist, but it looks incredibly basic. Somebody said to me that it was more or less the reference car floor. So the, you know, when F1 put like a reference car out that was displayed all around for this ground effect car, it's pretty much, I'm I'm told, that close to that. So they pretty much put zero resources towards the floor and the ground effect. So if you're Logan Sargent, a rookie, maybe a little bit out of your depth in F1, and you come up to one of the most notorious bite points in historic F1 and it catches you out. I'm likely to give you a pass on that one. Uh, real quick, we wondered aloud, Spanners. We didn't know for sure who the last American point scorer was in F1 since Scott Speed didn't didn't do it. Alexander Rossi didn't do it. The answer is Michael Andretti. Um, I'm pretty sure I said that. I think we, I think we, <laughs> CGI'd we need to roll it. the CGI it in. Which uh, he had his last race ever in F1 was a podium at Monza in 1993. Left, he left on a high note. I want to be clear. I, I don't want to be like overly harsh on Logan. I know this is all very new to him. He hasn't had much of a much experience in this way, in the way that you know Nick DeVries might or somebody else might. And some of the stuff that's happened to him isn't totally his fault. Like you know, the Monaco scrap was, I think, Hulk got like a five second penalty for. And in Miami, he had a bunch of mechanical issues. I just worry that 
you can't really be snake bitten for this long without some of it being your fault. And at some point, he has to be able to get a little bit closer to Alex and a little bit more consistent if they're going to stick with this going forward. You can't keep crashing and costing your team all of this money um, and hope that you're going to keep your seat for a really long time. So I hope it gets better going forward. I just it, it's been a rough, a rough few races. I do want to say real quick that when I was nine years old, uh, I raced Michael Andretti and Rusty Wallace at a theme restaurant in Orlando, and Michael Andretti beat the brakes off me, but I destroyed Rusty Wallace. <laughs> I have a photo of it. Spanish, you know who Rusty Wallace is? No, I was trying to think if I even had a comparable story, and I think I have, is that I beat uh, England goalkeeper Peter Shilton in oh. a fun run in Essex in 1995. But he was not a professional fun run guy. He was a goalkeeper. No, uh, yeah, England goalkeeper. Yeah. yeah. But that meant as much to me as your, your Rusty Duda. So, pff, I don't know. Rusty, Rusty was my guy. Rusty, Rusty, he was like a kind of a mine. He's a very famous NASCAR driver, but he was kind of a minor player in the Dale Earnhardt legacy. You know. Um, all right. So, not as remembered uh, as, as Dale in, in the NASCAR community. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So let's get to questions. I guess we will start with this. So I guess this is because if anybody didn't listen to the race, um, at one point Crofty said, that he would love to be Adrian Newey's manager. That's what he would do if he could manage anybody in F1. <laughs> and so we have a question um, from Decor, who said, say Adrian Newey decided today he wants a new challenge and he's going to Alpha. How much has the team improved the rest of this season? And what place do they finish in the constructors in, say, 2024 or 2025? Spanners, I guess the question is, how quickly could the best car designer in F1 actually work some magic? Why fast? Okay, yeah, it's a great question because it's like, okay, if you sent Sir Alex Ferguson down to the second division, you know, could he inspire a team to believe? Could he drag them up from the English Championship up to the the Premier League and play total football and and dominate and finish second and just just about fail to pit Man City? I just watched the TED. Oh, hang on, that's a spoiler. That might have to edit that out for Ted Lasso fans, but I've I've been fully all over that. So, can a manager, can an engineer, you have no, go you to have another no, team? I'll, I'll uh, you have no threat of me ever watching the last episode of okay, good. Ted Lasso. So <laughs> wow. I'm good. I don't care about the brutal. Viewer. I've watched uh, the spanners. Way, I'm with you. It's amazing, and the spoiler doesn't even take anything away from it. It's a great season. I'm starting it again from this from scratch with my kids. Uh, so, how long would it take in this era where the budgets are, are, are similar? And you could kind of go, well, I think the idea is going to be for all 10 teams to be able to spend all the money in the cost cap. I think that's the whole point of the cost cap. So it's easier in this era than say, right, let's let's chuck him in a Tolman or a Minardi 
or a um, or a caterham and say, can you bring that up to the front of the grid? Probably not. So in this era, I I think if you put him in Williams, he will tear that apart and he will say, right, we need to start this from the ground up, from the floor up and, and go again. So uh, James Vowles, the new Tim principal at Williams, was giving an interview where he was saying, well, actually, they're so out of date that that's why they're struggling. So a lot of the philosophies, a lot of the technology they, they're using is 20 years out of date. I'm pretty sure Adrian Newey would go in there and want to tear it up and start again. But could he? So if he went to Aston Martin, they have got kind of unlimited funds for facilities outside of the budget cap. And they've gone, they've made this new facility. They can kind of go to the the midfield of engineers, if you like, and just gather up a crew of good midfield engineers, which you will need around you. So I don't think Adrian Newey is 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 there every second of the day over everybody's CAD drawings. No, make this one degree, not two degrees. I don't think it's kind of to that that level. I would imagine that there's a concept. He sets a bunch of, of requirements, i.e. we need downforce points here, we need airflow uh, air here. That goes off to the department and it's kind of a, a requirement departmental uh, uh, method of engineering. And that's how a lot of engineering firms work. I think we have to start thinking of F1 teams like engineering firms. So as much as as much as we would like to think he could go in there and, and click a magic button, God, this answer's boring and it's transported me back to my days in engineering and project engineering. Um, but yeah, I think he would be limited in what he could do uh, by the infrastructure at, at a team. But he could certainly improve. I think, you look, listen to James Vowles, he seems to have a good idea of, of what is wrong and why their philosophy is wrong. So could Adrian Newey go in there and shake it up to some extent? Yeah, I, I think the timing piece of this is is really important because like if you listen to what Fred Vasseur said about Ferrari last week, I believe it was when they, he was asked if they're going to make improvements to the car this year. And he said, no, because if we did anything else now, we wouldn't be able to make changes really until October. And at that point, it's too late. So, I mean, if you drop Adrian Newey in now, maybe, you know, the last month of the season goes better for for these teams or they make very subtle improvements. Um I think 2024 is difficult too because a lot of the 2024 cars are already in wind tunnels and pretty like advanced stages of development. So certainly there would be more wiggle room to change that. But um, maybe like second half of 2024, 2025, I feel like is when you would really see it. Adrian Newey, you have your marching orders, buddy. I just don't know. Well, I I, I guess he's really good at something and he gets paid really, really well. And he doesn't want to do everything for a team and, and have to meet with the media all the time and take Nico Rosberg's weird-ass questions, Banners. <laughs> Maybe it's the same as drivers. So you say, you put Lewis Hamilton in a in a Williams, is he going to do better than Albon? I think I think he will. If you put Adrian Newey in at Williams, will he do better than their current head of design? Probably. So it could even be that it's a team game and not one individual can make all the difference. Yeah, um, I, I, all I know is I will once again plug a book I have no connection to, which is How to Build a Car by Adrian Newey, which is a really, really good memoir of his history, how he, how he came to be the best car designer, also touches on IndyCar and some of the other um, places he's been. So it's kind of a, a, big, a big picture look at, at racing and, and, and frankly, how to build a car. Um, he did not build a car for Rusty Wallace, though, so we never really know how, how great... He could be. Um, what has happened, Spanners, to Valtteri Bottas? 
Well, he's not in a really, really fast race car anymore. And uh, uh, so he looked quite good against Joe initially. And at the beginning of last season, they really had this kind of moment where it looked like Bottas was going to, you know, take it by the scruff of the neck. He's going to be a team leader. He's really going to advance that team. And now, well, basically we're looking at, I think, an Alfa Romeo that, that isn't looking as promising as it looked last season. So we've kind of got reversion to the mean which happens a lot of times in new regulations. So they're a very, very much a lower midfield car. You've got Wan Yu Zhou, who has become very comfortable in, in his driving and so is, has settled. And do we think that Valtteri Bottas was this, you know, hidden talent all along that was going to prop up to the very, very top of Formula One? Uh, I think he had his shot. He showed he was capable, but, but quite a way off Lewis Hamilton and wheel to wheel quite a way off of the the contenders around them when Ferrari were contending when uh, when Red Bull was starting to get you know uh, better especially in in 2021 we we never really saw that race where Valtteri Bottas like held off someone you know to the to the death for a historic win i can't i'm not i can't think of like where's the historic charge through the field he he had his moments obviously but there was no doubt that he wasn't of that top top tier a lot of drivers have had that opportunity, gone back into the midfield and done well. So could, would Bottas have done what Perez did in the midfield and get those nine podiums out of the midfield and, and tussle with Hulkenberg and with Ocon? I, I don't honestly think that Bottas would look particularly impressive at Haas, for example. I don't think he would look particularly impressive if you dropped him against Yuki Tsunoda. So I just think, you know, he's a, he's, just, I think we just need to reduce our expectations for Valtteri Bottas. Hmm. Um, Meg, Houston, do you have any thoughts on that? Or else I have another question for you, Meg. Well, I, I was just going to say, I feel like he grew a mustache and a mullet and became yep. very comfortable being that guy. And and I'm happy for him. If he's happy, biking, I'm happy. Biking all over America. Biking, yeah. That's just he's what he wants broke, to do. He? And that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Meg, we talked about this offline. Um, Houston asks, at what point do we get the Dutch national anthem just as the intro (laughs) F1 song? Just replace that intro at the beginning just to get it out of the way to have played it. Um, well, I texted Kevin about this during the anthem this time because it's, it's a very long anthem. I I don't know if they have multiple verses or if they played the extended version today, but I really noticed it for the first time, the length of it. And, uh, would be nice if we could get like a little key change in there, something a little a little peppier maybe, or even like a shortened version. Because by the end of it, even Max seemed a little bit bored because he's heard it so many times this year. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So, some little change would be great. Maybe like a live band or something. Sure. The only reason to have an anthem is for uh, fans to sing it before World Cup games and a couple other patriotic uh, events. Um, Spanners... Could a, could a driver just opt out and be like, let's just play my... Like, could Charles Leclerc, if he ever wins a race, you know, I know that seems un, unrealistic now. Could he just play his little piano stuff? <laughs> like, could you just say, actually, don't play my national anthem, play something, play, play Even Flow by Pearl Jam? Now, I have to be very careful as a Brit, because as you know, the monarchy monitor all their subjects, even, <laughs> even on international affairs such as, it, as this. But um, all national anthems are just dire, like 99% of them. The British national anthem is just, it's so boring. And to have that 
that playing at the most exciting moment. You've just had this adrenaline-filled two hours. You talk to a sweaty driver. How was that race? I don't know. I can't really speak. And then you go you know, up to the green room. They're reviewing it. They're all talking to each other. And then you go, here's your race winner, Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton. And then you just play 90 seconds of drudge. Just get rid of that. Play the national anthem as they're getting out of the car or something. But let's let's end standing there super awkwardly on the podium whilst these 800-year-old songs are played. I have a, another podium-related question that my friend Emily texted me after the race. And it was, how many people are we going to cycle through standing on the podium for Red Bull this year? Like, like not the drivers, mm. but the people who accept on behalf of the constructors. Like, how far down the list can we get? And my follow-up question to that was, do they decide who is going up there before the race? Or is it sort of like a post-race scramble? Like, would they be overly confident if they selected someone before the race? Or is it like after they pull, you know, so-and-so engineer and throw them up there? Isn't it like, uh, it's a little bit, Meg, like uh, in, in America, Spanish, we give rings when people win a championship. And a lot of times nice. someone has a bunch of rings. If we, if someone has a bunch of rings like Pat Riley or Shaq, they'll wear the ring that kind of is applicable to that scenario, right? So like you're saying like, oh, we're about to, we're about to go into the playoffs with a, with a team without a superstar. We won a championship without a superstar <laughs> in 1991. And I'm going to wear that ring around for the entire playoffs. Like that's pretty typical in football and, and basketball and, and some other sports as well. Um, I, from what I understand, like I remember one race, Red Bulls, basically like their HR person got it because there was just like, there were so many logistical problems and it was like, this person hires everybody. We're just going to let her Love go it. on the podium and, yeah. and be that because this was like a, a victory for our chief people officer, whatever they call them now. <laughs> um, and so like Spanish, you had something to say, but like that, I think it's more about that where it's like, okay, we're going to accentuate that this part of our company is cooking. So like, yeah, they're doing really well into sector one because it's just pointy down into that apex. Let's give it to the front wing crew and like Derek, head of front wing, you come up today. But they should just seek some advice from Mercedes because I think Mercedes rotated through through every single person there. Uh, but I don't think they're going to get bored of, I don't think they're going to get bored of winning. I don't think the hunger is gone. I, I just wanted to point out actually, while we're talking about uh, Red Bull on the, on the, uh, the top step still, interesting how Verstappen really cut across the nose of signs on turn one. You know, he he could have, and I'm sure a lot of other drivers would have done, you go, signs is alongside, was fully alongside into turn one. A lot of drivers with the dominant car advantage that, that Verstappen has could have tucked in right, could have let signs get the run up of turn three, and he'd have had him. He'd have had him at, at any point over the next three laps, whether he realized that or not. The fact that he still really took a very strong, aggressive line. As soon as they got into the braking zone, Carlos Sainz would have seen that that Red Bull jutted ahead of him. And that Red Bull jutted ahead of him at a pace and speed that was never going to ever leave a car's width on the outside. So psychologically, it's interesting that Verstappen is still fighting that hard. Uh, I, I guess maybe they thought Ferrari was the biggest threat. But had Sainz held his ground or, or let go of the brake in exactly the same manner as Verstappen did, and he was entitled to go for the same piece of track that Verstappen ended up in, that would have been that would have been a crash. That would have been the two of them out. Well, guys, Montreal is next. Do you like Montreal? I do. Meg, I feel like Montreal should be a bigger deal in North America. I think so too. I feel like it's like the little, little brother now that we have. Well, I mean, granted, Miami and Vegas are, you know, kind of the new flashy thing, but 
I feel like even Mexico City is uh, kind kind of a bigger deal than than Montreal. And I think Montreal I is agree. actually like a very very fun racetrack. I don't know why it doesn't get more shine. Maybe Canadians are just too nice to kind of force their way to the front and and market it more. But I, I find it really fun. I actually I always like that race. It is by far the closest race to my house, and I've never <laughs> considered going there. Part wow. of it is because it's right off of. It's a month after Miami, so that all the resources and stuff go go there. The time goes there, but I should probably just go next year. I am I'm offended on behalf of Canadians. I'm I'm so <laughs> sorry, Canadian F1 I fans. I apologize for these guys. But the Montreal Grand Prix isn't. A, did you call it a little cousin? Like a little that brother. Is the, that is the granddaddy of North American race tracks. That has been race around. tracks. But the race itself, like spectacle-wise, is what I meant. I like the track a lot. I think the track is wonderful. It's binary. I oh gosh, I, I know Clarky's wrong about this. So you know, emails to Clarky. But like Cota's like solidly the best racetrack, one of the best racetracks on the calendar overall now, top five. Oh, right. But and I know you don't like it. But uh, you said cancel it, burn it with fire. I said I don't agree with that. Send emails to to Kev Clark. I, s- um, I there's said no, there's I no said... time to argue. <laughs> Uh, but the Montreal is binary. It's 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 black and white. So yes, it can deliver a boring race, but you sprinkle a little bit of rain in there, a well-timed safety car, it, not quite on the level of, of Baku that absolutely needs that. But Montreal has had some absolutely classic Grand Prix. So go and search if you can find a rerun of Montreal 2011. Yep. Uh, and that is uh, Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso, uh, Sebastian Vettel, fighting it out in 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 the rain. I think they all had about six pit stops. There was collisions at the pit lane. There was action throughout that race. Uh, go and see that for the best of Montreal. It's a great racetrack to race in the sim as well. Uh, it's, it's flowing. It's very, very fast. It is absolutely the best temporary track. And I know people argue with me, but I think it is technically a track that you can just drive around if you want to commute and go to the park. You can drive on that. So it's technically a street track. It is absolutely the best street circuit in F1. Wow. Meg on Fraud Watch. <laughs> hey, Meg, I you, said I like so, the track. I feel like I was... you're an honorary. How far are you right now from Canada? Two hours? Uh, no, it's more. It's probably four or five. I live like the Twin Cities oh, so is kind good. of south in Minnesota. Yeah you're, yeah, you're good. You're good. You've got I good am, distance then. I am going to Canada for the first time though in July this year. So please I don't, don't know uh, if you are. After don't come this. for I me. I don't know. Don't I don't know. This is. Are you, where are you going? Vancouver. Mm. Banff. Oh, very nice. Doing a hiking um, trip. So there if, you go. When, if when you get the you know the ringer invited down to do like Miami, like what you did at Miami, except down at Canada, I think that has to be you and me this time, Kev, because. Shusty has shown her Canadian hatred and will not be welcome there. It's All really I said bad. was, I think it should be more celebrated than it is. Okay. That's all I said. That's all I said. I don't think that was the take. I don't think that was the take. I don't think that was the take. All right. We will see you uh, for our next race, race recap in Montreal. We'll be back, obviously, before that with a episode next week. Thank you to Carlos Chiriboga for his production help. This has been the Ringer F1 show on the Ringer Podcast Network.